Okay, so as I mentioned last, I think it was last month we talked about it, um, but we're going to be doing a Q&A the last Wednesday of every month, and so I went ahead and sent out um, a little questionnaire that you can submit your questions. I had a few, and of course the ones that you guys sent me, I'm like, great, we're starting off with that, which is hilarious. So it'll be a lot of fun. So we're going to be talking about some stuff tonight, um, and it'll be, it'll be very interesting. Things that people think the Bible does not talk about, but in fact it really does. So with our Q&A, we're going to be kicking it off with uh, a certain question on this one, and I'll let you know what that is, and it naturally goes into our next question. Um, but I want to just say a couple things before we start the Q&A. So when it comes to questions and answers and when it comes to the stuff we're going to talk about, I'm not going to share this information with you just so, so that way you can be equipped to basically beat people up with the Bible. Um, these things fascinate me. I, there are always good questions uh, that you have as you're trying to figure out your faith, trying to figure out the Bible. There's a lot of people that question the Bible, and I think it's good to question what you believe. I think it's good to question things in the scriptures, because how do you know that what you believe is actually real unless you search it out yourself? And the answer to that is... Don't. You don't. You can't. There's no way. So I remember spending years in the junior high of just getting junior hires to question what they believe and why. And so if you've never done that, you need to do that. You need to figure out that what you believe is actually true, and you need to figure that out. And the biggest reason is, is eternity is a long time to be wrong. And so it's better now to sit down and question these things and figure it out for yourself so that way you can find the truth. You don't just go somewhere and just believe it just because a pastor says it or a church says it. You want to believe what the Bible says. And I don't care where you go or what you do, as long as you do that, as long as you get into the habit of questioning and then basing your answer on what the Bible says, it doesn't matter what church you go to, what part of the country, what part of the world you go to, you will be absolutely fine because you're learning how to walk with God on your own. And one of the best ways, and I think reasons why people don't evangelize, we're going to be getting into evangelism in a couple weeks, if not next week, is because they're afraid of the questions that are going to be asked of them. And so then they have to then uh, 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 stumble around and look like idiots. Or you just don't open up your mouth about your faith and what you believe, and so you never get questions asked of you. But I think it's good. I think it's good that people ask you questions. I think you should put yourself in positions to put your beliefs out there. Um, because, I mean, you guys know everyone else is putting all their beliefs out there. Why can't we? You know what I mean? And if you put something out there that you believe and then you get tested, you can find out, I actually do know the answer or I need to figure this out and it will help you out from day to day. So I really want you guys to get into that kind of mindset. So these are a couple questions that we're going to be hitting and I do have a video clip if we have time and depending on where this goes and how much time we have left over, we can take some questions at the end. Uh, we're not going to be able to get all the questions that everybody submitted, but we've got those saved so that we can tackle those at the end of next month as well. Alright, so here's our first question and before we actually present the question, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that you would help us to uh, really get our hearts and minds around your word and if there's any Anything that we take a look at tonight that might be hard to understand, I pray that we would um, just believe it because it's your word. Your word is um, incredible. And you, you have said very clearly in Psalm 138 that you've magnified your word above your name. We get to know you because of what your book says. And your book is perfect. There's a lot of people that may not even believe that, but your book is perfect. There are no flaws in it whatsoever. And we can trust every single word. And I thank you for giving us your book. And I pray that tonight as we work 
through these details, we would really stand in awe of these things and really um, just be thankful and grateful to you for what you've given us through your word as a gift. And we would appreciate it. And we wouldn't neglect your word, but that we would really grab hold of it with our hearts and, um, and really dive into it deeper for ourselves. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this one uh, goes to, to Ben, and so thank you, Ben, for asking this question um, right out of the gate. Turn to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. What are the flying rolls in the Bible? Zechariah is in the Old Testament. It's in the Minor Prophets. Zechariah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. Mark so, if you go Matthew, and you go back to Malachi, and you go back to Zechariah, you'll find it. Zechariah chapter 5. Oh, it says the flying roll. Yeah, the flying roll. Zechariah chapter 5. The flying roll. Okay, if you were to search for the flying roll in the scriptures, you would find it only here. So this is the only mention in the Bible of the flying roll. And so let's go ahead and read it. It's only 11 verses, and then we're going to walk our way through it. Okay, verse 1, chapter 5. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off on that side according to it. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talon of lead, and this is, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they had lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, Whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, To build it an house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and, and set there upon her own base." Okay, everybody get all that? <laughs> that was like, whew, what in the world is going on there? All right, so we got flying rolls, we got ladies, we got this ephah, we've got, you know, a talent of lead thrown on the mouth of whatever, and then it flies somewhere, and then, okay, it's just kind of confusing. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to identify a couple things in here, and we're going to work our way down through, uh, but ultimately, what is this? There's a lot of people that think that the flying roll is the scriptures, because there's other places in the Bible where it talks about when God had spoken unto a prophet, and that prophet had a scribe, and he wrote things down, he wrote it on a scroll or a roll. And so a lot of people think that this is God's word. There's other people that, you know, and this kind of goes back to the ancient traditions of storks being associated with babies and how it has something to do with storks with babies or whatever. I'm like, okay, but that's not clearly what's going on here, but they'll throw that out there. So 
here's, here's, well, let's just work our way through it and then we'll come to our conclusion. We'll just do it that way. Probably be an easier way to do it. Okay, so first of all, in verse one, he says, Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and, and looked, and behold, a flying roll. A flying roll. So it could be a scroll, but it's a roll. So what is the shape of a roll? It's like a cylinder. <clears throat> Not a ball. It'd be like a cylinder, right? So I got this picture, and this may help out a little bit, but this is kind of, this is a roll that's unfolded, but it's a flying roll. So if you were to take the scrolls back in the day, and they found these in uh, the caves and um, over by the Dead Sea and things like that, but you'd have scriptures or copies of scriptures that would be wrapped up in like a roll, okay? So it's a flying roll, so you see this cylinder, all right? So he lifts up his eyes, and he sees this flying roll. It'd be like a cylinder of a scroll wrapped up. And he said unto me, what seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll. So, I mean, it's very simple. What do you see? There's a roll, and it's flying. I don't know who threw it, but it's flying. And the length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. Okay, so now we have the measurements of it. So if you were to go back and study what a cubit is, and you go by the royal cubit, which is the typical measurement, a royal cubit is about 20.6 inches. So when you measure that out by feet, the flying roll is approximately 34 feet by 17 feet. Right? So you have a flying roll that is 34 feet by 17 feet, and it's flying in the atmosphere. Is that like as if it were a piece of paper laid flat, or is that like as a cylinder? Cylinder. Okay. So it'd be like a cylinder, 17 by 34. Oh, wow. Okay? Got it so far? Got the picture? Okay. All right. Verse 3. Then he said unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off on this side according to it, and everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So this is not a good thing. Right? Because he calls it a curse. And it goes across the face of the whole earth. So it's a flying roll. 17 by 34, and it is a curse, and it goes around the entire planet. Okay? Good so far? Okay. Might be weird, but are we good so far? Okay. All right. And then we see after this, verse 4, I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof, and the stones thereof. So what is it going to do? Consume. Consume. Consume what? People. People and? The house itself. The house itself. Okay, so, so far there's a couple things here that if you compare scripture to scripture, use treasury scripture knowledge, you start researching other places in the Bible, there's a few things that start to come into play here. All right? So, first of all, the phrase in verse 3 where it talks about the curse that goeth over the face of the whole earth. There's a place in Malachi, chapter 4, it's at the very end of the Old Testament, so hold your spot here. Just go over a couple pages to your right, over to Malachi, and go to the last chapter right before Matthew. Malachi, chapter 4, and take a look at verse 5 and 6. So he's talking about the second coming of Christ. So this is at the end. So you're talking about the tail end of Revelation, all the events between the bulls, the vials, and everything that unfolds uh, in the book of Revelation. And it says in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a 
curse. curse. So it's very similar in its wording where God's going to say, I'm going to cause it to bring forth and it's going to go into people's houses and those people's houses where it will remain, it will consume them. So it's very closely tied to the second coming and right before Christ comes back again. The other place in the Bible where you have something like this that exists, it is a, frankly, a disease that can get into people and it can get into houses in the Old Testament. Anybody want to take a guess? Anybody? Anybody? Leprosy. Dude, you you did it! All right. Leprosy. Leprosy. So if you were to go back to Leviticus and you were to study out the rules that happen with leprosy in chapter 13 and chapter 14, you would find that leprosy is a disease that you would get in your skin and it was highly contagious and people even had to wear masks coincidentally, if they had leprosy. Okay. And then the leprosy itself could actually get into the timbers and the stones of the house. And if they could not cleanse that house of that disease, they had to tear everything down and rebuild the house again. So there's a whole process they had to work through, but there's no cure for leprosy. And leprosy was a deadly, deadly disease. In fact, people were quarantined if they had leprosy because they were afraid of spreading it around. It's very interesting when you study leprosy and a lot of the guidelines and things that are happening for highly infectious diseases, they actually pull straight out of Leviticus 13 and 14. So anyway, so you have this thing and there's a disease. Ironically, ironically, in the book of Revelation, when you study it out, you find out that whoever takes the mark of the beast actually gets a form of leprosy. Did you know that? Whoever takes the mark of the beast gets a form of leprosy that creates black spots in their skin. Leprosy. Go back to Leviticus 13 and 14. And it's a rash that they want it to go away and they can't. In fact, they try to kill themselves and they can't. There's several things like that that are associated with that. So that's interesting. So here you have, it's tied in with the second coming of Christ with Malachi 4, 5, and 6 about something going into people's houses and consuming them and consuming their houses until it's completely desolated and how it's tied back with leprosy. Just interesting as a side note. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 5. So you have this flying roll, and it is 17 feet by 34 feet, and it flies through the atmosphere, kind of like a craft of some kind. Interesting. Verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes, and see what is this that goeth forth. So there's something else that's going forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. Okay, so anybody know what an ephah is? I know we use this term like every day, right? No, it is not. Sounds like a loofah. A loofah? <laughs> I was in the shower every day. <laughs> yeah, I like my ifa. <laughs> yeah, ifa. God bless you. It's no. Okay. So when you study that, it's not a rope. Ifa is a measurement. So in the Old Testament, and even into the New Testament, but mainly in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew measurement. It's a measurement of dry goods. So if you had like an ephah of flour or an ephah of grain, it's a measurement. Ephah of loofahs. Yeah, you've got an ephah of loofahs. Anyway, all right. It's almost like miska muska Mickey Mouse. So. <laughs> Anyway, so ephah, all right? So it's a measurement. Now, when you are cooking, baking, doing whatever, and you are trying to measure things out, what do you do? You scoop it into a measuring cup. And on that measuring cup, it tells you the measurement of the quantity of whatever you got in there, liquid or dry, whatever, okay? 
All right, so it's kind of like that. So if you have an EFA, that is a measurement of something. So in order to have something, you have to have it in a container in order to measure what an EFA actually is. Okay? So when he says, I see an EFA, he can't just say, you know, there's just a pile of flour or whatever. Like it's in a container. Okay, so he knows that it's an ephah, and he says at the end of verse 6, and he said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So this is something that is very, very common. And notice also it says that it went forth. So you have this flying roll that is flying through the atmosphere, 34 feet by 17 feet, and then all of a sudden you see this ephah, so it's this container that is going forth, so it's moving as well. All right, everybody tracking so far? Okay, all right, so then you have that. Then verse 7, and behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Okay, so this is where, now I don't think it's exactly like this, but it would be kind of like this, where you have this basket that measures ephah. Now, this is obviously made out of, you know, some sort of a wicker or straw or something like that. But then you have a lid of lead with this woman in the midst of the ephah, okay? And that lid of lead goes over it like a door or a window or a way for her to get in and out. Now, it's also quite possible that this container of sorts could also be made of lead as well, so it could, the whole thing could be metal. And so, but it's very clear that there is a lid or a door for that person to go in and out of the midst of the ephah. Okay? Okay. All right, good so far. Let's keep going. And obviously, according to verse 8, is this good or bad? Bad. bad. Yes, it says this is wickedness. And last time I checked, wickedness is not good. Unless you're skating. <laughs> Unless you're, yeah. Wicked. Yeah, no. All right. Not exactly. Ah. Hey, that's Carson's joke. That was not mine. That was not mine. Hey, good. Give him credit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to give credit where credit's due. Okay. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is this phrase of a woman sitting in the midst of something like this. There's another Another passage that came to my mind that was it was very it was very familiar the way that it's worded. So hold your spot here. Go to Matthew chapter thirteen. Matthew chapter thirteen. And of course, thirteen is a good number or a bad number? Bad. Bad, bad number. Lucky thirteen. Okay. Sure, if you want that. <laughs> okay. So what's very interesting is in the, in the midst of Matthew chapter 13, so the religious Jews have now completely rejected their Messiah. And now Jesus begins speaking to people in parables. So he begins telling these stories. And there's a reason why he's doing it. But it's very interesting. When you study out these parables, you actually find out that God tells the entire nation of Israel everything that's going to happen from that point forward all the way through human history that leads up to the tribulation and the second coming. It's really neat. You can take all these parables. There are seven of them here. And each parable lines up with the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to give you a complete picture of, of church history. So it's really neat. It's quite interesting. And right smack dab in the middle of these parables, there's, a, there's one verse that Jesus shares. And it matches up with the, the time of Thyatira in church history, which is around 580 to 1000 AD. But it's verse 33. And it says... Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now, this takes a lot more studying, but it's very interesting. Leaven in the Bible is not good. 
when you take the word leaven and you study it out throughout Scripture, you find out that leaven is a representation of sin. It's a representation of false doctrine. Now, meal is a representation of Christians, because when you study it out, you find out that, uh, that Christians are like unto grain, and of course, when grain, it falls into the ground, it dies, it produces more fruit, and there's things like that where there's a really cool picture of that being like believers. So a woman takes false doctrine, sin, and hides it in the middle of three measures of meal. It's quite interesting. When you study church history around 500 to 1000 AD, you find out that there is basically, basically only three divisions within Christianity. You had the Protestants, which happened around 1500, but it was, it was about to go there, that the doctrine that started around that time. And then the Roman Catholic Church split into two different segments. And so here you have a woman taking false doctrine and hiding it in the midst of three measures of meal. It's just a coincidence, I'm sure, that at that point in time there were three major components of Christianity that were mainstream, and here they're inundated with false doctrine. Just very interesting. But here you have this woman in the midst of something that ends up corrupting it. So that's interesting. It's kind of a side note. And this is why, honestly... The reason why we're going through this is I want to show you guys as we compare Scripture to Scripture, we're employing the rules of Bible study that we just covered not that long ago. And as I'm working through this, I'm like, oh, I'm reading this. I'm like, that's like this over here. That's like this over here. That's like this over here. And then you start to compare it all together, and God starts putting all these pictures together to give you some incredible truths. So here you have this woman in the midst of the ephah, and she's covered with this lid or this door of lead. Now, interestingly enough, lead has an evil connotation to it as well. Um, in Exodus 15.10, God refers to Pharaoh and his armies as lead sinking down in the Red Sea after God made the Red Sea crash back over them. He says they sunk as lead. So here you have all the stuff that's just not good. And he flat out says, this is wickedness. The woman that's in the midst of the ephah is wickedness. Okay? All right. So... The interesting thing about this, and we'll get to wickedness here in a little bit, but I want to just keep going with this picture because I want to explain the picture and then kind of go back and work it a little bit. Verse 9. Then lifted I up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. So you had one, but now you have two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah. Between the earth and the heaven. Then I said, then said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do these bear the ephah? So they're carrying this ephah, this container with a, with a lid on top of it, or a door, as it says, uh, of lead, over the mouth thereof. So they're taking this ephah, they're bearing it. And he said unto me, verse 11, to build it in house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So we know this is evil. We know it's wickedness. We know all that stuff. We, know, we can research all this stuff out and we find out as you compare one passage to another passage that this is not good. This is not good. But here and now you have a flying ephah. So you had a flying scroll, this giant craft, and then now you have a flying ephah and it's piloted by two women that are carrying this thing called wickedness to the land of Shinar. Now, you might say this, think this is absolutely crazy, but this is probably the only place in the scriptures that somewhat accurately describes the whole concept of UFOs. What? You're laughing already? <laughs> I forgot you said you were going to talk about UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the only place in scripture where it begins to talk about that, because as you start to really kind of look at all this stuff, you start to find out, that when you, when you start to take a look at it, so you have this giant flying roll, 
that's 34 by 17. And then you have this smaller ephah that has a lead covering over the mouth of it with these ladies that have the, it says the, the wind is in their wings and they're able to fly this over to the place of Shinar. It's just very interesting. It's just quite interesting how, that, how, that's, how that's all worded. And what's interesting about this is that I mean, there's conspiracies. I mean, you got to be careful where you go on the internet when you start talking about UFOs and stuff because there's a bunch of junk that's out there. But there is some things that are legitimately interesting. You, I don't know if you guys saw this. I'll show you guys a video in a minute. But uh, last year, um, our government had declassified a whole bunch of stuff where there are legitimate weird spacecrafts or crafts that are flying through the atmosphere that they have no idea what it is or where it came from. And they're finally just admitting it. And they actually release some documentation of it. And you have guys that are Air Force pilots that this is not something that is just like one or two instances. This has happened over and over and over and over and over again. And they cannot explain it. And they look at these objects flying through the sky and the physics do not make any sense whatsoever. Now, I am not a conspiracy theorist at all, at all. I believe what the Bible says. And here I see these things start to occur, and I'm like, well, that's interesting because you have this flying roll, you got the dimensions, you have this ephah that is called wickedness, and it's being carried and flown by these two women that are apparently piloting it because they have the wind in their wings, and they're like storks, which, by the way, storks, if you study it in Leviticus, storks are always unclean animals. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, God calls them abomination among the fowl. So all of this is unclean, demonic, satanic, evil things that are happening. And then, of course, they land in the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is a whole different ballgame. And so we're going to get to that in a minute. But I want to show you this video. This is quite interesting. All right. Hopefully this will all work. This is why I wanted this to work today. This video is appearing to show UFOs flying through the air are real. They don't call them UFOs. They call them unidentified aerial phenomena. They, these, uh, the several videos they're talking about were recorded years ago by fighter pilots. Then in 2017, they were made public by the New York Times. More now from our Randy Kay. Images of that rotating thing captured by U.S. Navy aircraft. Sensors locking in on the target. Commander David Fravor saw it firsthand during a training mission, describing it like a 40-foot-long tic-tac, maneuvering rapidly and changing direction. As we both looked out the right side of our airplane, we saw a disturbance in the water and a white object oblong pointing north. The object was first sighted in 2004, then similar objects again in 2015. Footage of the sightings, declassified by the military, weren't made public until December 2017 by the New York Times and a group that researches UFOs. This is extremely abrupt, like a ping-pong ball bouncing off the wall. The ability to hover over the water and then start a vertical climb from basically zero up towards about 12,000 feet and then accelerate in less than two seconds and disappear is something I have never seen in my life. The Navy says it still doesn't know what the objects are and officials aren't speculating. A Navy spokesman simply confirming to CNN the objects seen in the various clips are unidentified aerial phenomena or UAPs. 
The UFO reports were first investigated by a secret $22 million program, part of the Defense Department budget, it's that real. investigated reports of That's UFOs. The program has since been shut down, but it was run by a military intelligence official who told CNN they found compelling evidence that we, quote, may not be alone. Randy Kay, CNN, New York. Yeah, straight up. So it's it's very it's very interesting. Now, uh, the reason why I wanted to hit this one first is because it ties back into at the very end where it says to build in a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So you have this flying roll, then you have this ephah, and it's carried specifically to the land of Shinar. Now that to me is where everything starts to really come together. So go back to Genesis 11. I want you to see this. Genesis 11. Genesis, Genesis, however you want to pronounce it. Genesis. <laughs> All right. What we have in none of that. Yeah, chapter 11. Okay. So chapter 11, verse 1, starts to begin about the whole earth being of one language and of one speech. Now, the first time that Shinar shows up in the whole term Babel is actually back one chapter, chapter 10, verse 10. And it talks about this guy named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod was the king at this point in time of this particular city, and he began his kingdom. And it says in verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Okay? So that's where everything begins. We know that Nimrod is the main guy. Now, when you study out Nimrod, he was very rebellious against God. Uh, he did not want to obey God, and it's very clear by how he ran his kingdom according to chapter 11. So look, look at verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they, and, and they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad, abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the interesting thing about this is that they came together, but what did God command Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Replenish the earth, which tells you that the earth was full at one point and then now it's their job to repopulate it. Interesting story to come back to at a later point in time. So, he said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. So, have babies, raise them, and then they would go and they would have babies, raise them, and they would go and have babies and spread abroad the face of the whole earth. Very simple. But here they find a plain, they dwell there, and they said in verse 4, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. This is in direct violation of what God has told them to do. God told them to be fruitful and multiply. Don't come together and make yourself your own place in your own kingdom. Go and spread out and populate my kingdom. And this is why the whole concept of cities, frankly, is, is really in direct... I mean, cities are atrocious as far as the things that even take place in cities. Once you get a bunch of sinners together in one place, only sin can occur. So, they are in direct violation of God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And they don't want to do it. And now they want to make themselves a name 
So they're trying to even replace and give them an excuse not to be obedient to what God has told them. So they build themselves a city and they build a tower. And that top of the tower may reach unto heaven is what it says. Heaven. So they know that God's in heaven and they know that they could get there. And so they want to build their own kingdom, their own society, and they want to build their own religion whose top of that tower may reach unto heaven. Now let's keep going. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So if we're going to believe the Bible, what did God himself say about these people? That they could reach heaven from the top of this tower. How is that even possible? Heaven must be a physical place. Yes, it is a physical place they could get to. Build a rocket ship. Build a rocket ship of some kind. When I was younger, and I shared this not too long ago, but I was always thinking the Tower of Babel, that they would just kind of keep building that tower and just keep building it and keep building it and keep building it. But then as I got older and then realized there's a thing called science, (laughs) it would not work, right? Because you get to a certain point where the tip of that tower would be moving faster than the actual planet based upon the rotation of the Earth. So that would not work. So the only way that the top of that tower could actually reach unto heaven is if that top of that that platform, either number one was a portal of some kind, right? I mean, I'm just thinking logically. A portal or there was some sort of a craft or spaceship of some kind that would actually get them to the third heaven. Because I firmly believe that if you, you know, when you start to take a look at, um, you know, compasses, and you look at true north versus magnetic north, and you start taking a look at the north star and everything, I honestly believe that if you were to take a rocket and had enough fuel and you were to travel as far as you can, uh, and and you could possibly get there because you had enough fuel and you went the direction of the north star, you would actually hit the window of the third heaven. Because according to Genesis chapter 1, when God put the firmament in the midst of space and created what we now know as space and he divided everything out, you have the atmosphere of the earth, which is the first heaven. You have outer space, which is the second heaven. And then you have the third heaven, which is where God's throne is. And how it talks about that water barrier called the sea of glass that actually separates the third heaven from the second heaven. And how when we're in heaven one day and in God's throne before he comes back again, that you're going to actually be able to walk on the sea of glass. And there's actually windows and doors. It's very interesting once you start putting that stuff out there. Wouldn't you not be able to breathe, though? Who? Like, the people in space. In space? Like, when you were climbing up, like, even on a mountain, like, you can't breathe when, like, you're on top. There's no Correct. Air, there's no and that's because you are oxygen-based life form. The people. So they had no lungs, too? Or they didn't have oxygen in their blood, and they didn't have blood. So it's a completely different thing, which we could get to in a minute. All right. So, so when you start to put all this stuff together and you just start thinking logically and you believe the Bible and you believe what God himself has said, they had the ability to actually get to heaven without God's approval. Because they were trying to find a way to usurp God's plan, God's authority, God's everything in order to get to heaven on their own. Which is exactly what Lucifer wanted to do. He was not content with how God made him. And he wanted to make his own way and do his own thing and actually be equal with God. 
So God says, all right, we got to mess this thing up so that way they don't actually do what they were planning on doing. And that's where he says in verse 7, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad. See, God's plan is still accomplished. He still scatters them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore, the name of it is called Babel. Because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. So, when you start to compare Scripture to Scripture, again, land of Shinar, Zechariah 5, this flying roll, this flying ephah, and it's carried to the land of Shinar that it may be placed on their own base, it is very likely that the Tower of Babel was actually a landing pad for the spacecraft that could actually transport people from the Tower of Babel to the third heaven. Does that mean they would have to break the sea of glass first, though? They would, but there are windows and doors. And Leviathan is said in Psalm 104, I believe it is. It might be 109. I can't remember. 104. Where it talks about Leviathan plays in the deep, in the sea, which is actually out there in the great deep. So it's interesting. That's, that's, another, that's another thing for another day. So when you take a look at Zechariah 5, you have all this coming together, and this is where it all ties, all ties in. Um, we do not have enough time to get into the next one. So based off of that, any questions? <laughs> anybody? Anybody? <laughs> yeah. Yes. For them to actually build a rocket ship and to get into space, doesn't that mean if scientists can actually succeed in what they're trying to do, does that mean that they can go up there too? Like heaven is still a physical place at this point. Yes, it still is. So, and this is where it kind of goes down the rabbit trail a little bit. And I wanted to get into our next one because we're going to be talking about is there a biblical reason for vampires and werewolves? Because we were going to actually get into that. I know, right? I know, right? We were, I know. We were, we were, we were going to talk all about that. But let me give, it, let me give you to you in, in a snapshot, all right? So, I'll give it to you in a snapshot. Okay. Snapshot, yes. And we'll end, we'll end on this point. All right. So at this point in time in human history, whenever you start to take a look at everything and you start to look at this from a logical perspective, okay? So this was thousands of years ago that this happened. Within the last mm, 100 years, we have made very significant technological advancements unlike the, the human race has ever seen. It came out of the Enlightenment. And where did all this information and this knowledge come from? Who knows? Some of it could have been from God. Some of it could have been from whatever. But all I do know is this. From the very beginning, Lucifer has been trying to counter and counterfeit God's plan from the very beginning. He can't invent anything new, but he can take what God wants to do and put his own stamp on it and counterfeit the whole thing. Lucifer is extremely wise. When you study out and you look at the passages in Ezekiel 27, 28, you take a look at Isaiah 14, uh, you take a look at places in Daniel where it talks about the Antichrist, you find out that Lucifer himself and the Antichrist, super, super smart. When you look at God's hierarchy of everything that he's made, and you were to put a scale on it as far as might and power and wisdom, you would have the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, because they've always been in existence. And so even they're outside of time, but they're all powerful, all knowing, uh, everywhere all at the same time, the stuff we talked about last week. So you have all that. But then the second in command was Lucifer. 
Whenever you study it out, Lucifer was not an angel. He was an, the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. He was second in command. And God says very specifically about Lucifer that there was no one made like unto him. No one. In wisdom, in beauty, in brightness, in majesty, in power, in authority, everything. He had everything. He was number two. And when he fell into sin, Isaiah 14, because of his own pride, he fell from his position. And so that's where then God the Son ended up taking on flesh and actually became the Messiah or the Anointed One. And so Jesus Christ himself kind of, in a way, took that position because it needed to be filled. And then also to deal with all the consequences of all that, because Lucifer then, you know, he's the originator of sin. He's the propagator of sin. He's the one that tempted Adam and Eve. And so then God has to deal with all that. And so he himself then dies for sin and is able to become the judge and, and put it to rest once and for all. So as you kind of take a look at that, every step of the way, Lucifer has been, has been working his plan. Every step of the way. Every step of the way. He knows you and I better than anybody else, but he's been working every step of the way. And anything that he can do to steal glory and worship away from God, he is going to do it. Right out of the gate with Genesis 3, he shows up as if he's Jesus Christ himself in the garden talking with Adam and Eve. And then he tempts them. So he's already trying to usurp everything that God's been doing. And, and we don't have time to look at this this week anyway, but if he can... If he can corrupt, from the very beginning, if he can corrupt the human race, if he can corrupt the human seed, then Jesus Christ can't be born of human flesh. And if Jesus Christ can't be born of human flesh, God cannot deal with sin once and for all, and Lucifer is one. That has been his end game from the very beginning until Jesus was born. That's why you see the nation of Israel persecuted, I mean, again and again and again and again and again throughout human history because he wants to attack the physical human seed so that way the Messiah can't come. Now that that has happened and he was born, he lived, he died, he resurrected from the grave, defeated sin and death, he knows he has just a short time, but he's still trying to usurp God's plan. And the only way he can do that is by counterfeiting it, which he's done every step of the way. This is why the nation of Israel struggled with worshiping of God and all the time where God said, don't worship idols. Don't worship idols. The first idol that you see in the Bible is a hybrid between a man and a fish. Where did that even come from? Then you started studying stuff about Molech. And Molech was another god that the Israelites, they tripped over and they worshiped him all the time. And Molech was half bull, half man, which is also Baal worship. Where did they even get that concept from? It all goes back to Lucifer. We don't have time to get into all the details of it tonight. We can do that at another point in time. But all these things, all these little traces of mythology have legitimate traces all the way back to Lucifer trying to get men and women to start worshiping him and to corrupt the human race in order for the Messiah not to come. I'll leave it with that. All right. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll be done. And then you guys can pray together in the main service. Father, thank you so much for our time together in your word. And I do pray that we would uh, really grab a hold of these things and really stand in awe of you and uh, the wisdom that you've even placed in your book. Thank you for giving us a book that gives us answers to all of life's questions. I pray this would get people's minds and hearts moving in the right direction and that they would uh, really want to seek you and to um, really adore you. So thank you very much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you.